You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. We're in uh, Matthew 26. Open your Bibles. We're working our way toward the end of Matthew, and we're in a very appropriate place this morning with... um, the subject of what we call Easter, uh, we'll call it Resurrection Sunday here, but I think we understand uh, uh, when you hear the word Easter, that's what it's really a reference to, the time when Christ crucified, buried, and then of course rose again three days later for us, um, for our justification. You understand that uh, what a great sacrifice it was for Christ to die on Calvary, tremendous sacrifice, the, the greatest heaven had to offer, God himself died with the sins of the world on him. So imagine him going into the grave, and uh, he's bearing the sins of man, carrying our burden into the grave. But if he stays there, there's still no victory over that sin. So when Christ rose from the grave and we have the resurrection, uh, then, then you have uh, what we call justification. Man's sins have now been washed away, those who call upon the name of the Lord, our sins can now be washed away because of his victory over that sin. Not only did he go to the grave with sin on him, but when he came up out of the grave, it showed that he had victory over death, over Satan, and over our sin. And I say praise the Lord for that. It's a a great thought as we head toward uh, Resurrection Sunday. But today as we get into Matthew 26, we're going to take a look at some things that picture... Um, what Christ actually did for us. There are religions today that take, uh, listen to me before we get into the message today, there are religions today that will take things in the Bible that God intended to simply be a picture of something greater. And they will use the picture to be a part of what they think is their salvation. Um... They'll, they'll take the pick, for instance, baptism. Let's, let's take the subject of baptism. And uh, if you're here on Sunday nights, typically when we baptize, that's when uh, you'll probably see uh, somebody, you know, our baptistry is a little higher, but you at least see their heads while they're standing in the baptistry, and then you see them go under and come back up. And, um, and it's, a, it's nothing more than a picture of what Christ has done for that individual. The water is not, does not have any saving grace to it. Uh, It's simply an act of obedience to the Lord, showing the world, of course, the testimony that I'm saved uh, already, and this is what Christ did for me to to bring that to pass. I came up out of the water representing the fact that I have new life, just like Christ came up out of the grave and has new life. But there are people that will continue to state and to say that if you're not baptized, you don't have real salvation, that you have to have baptism. It's simply not taught in the Scripture anywhere. If Jesus' blood is not enough to cover my sin debt, then I promise you water's not going to get the job done either. That's for sure. All water can do is to represent what Christ has done for us. What we're going to read about today is much the same way. There's a lot of people that will believe this is a sacrament, and if I understand that correctly, it's part of their salvation. And of course we have to do this... uh, and some do it on a weekly basis. Some, as often as they meet, will, will partake of the Lord's Supper and believe that it's part of their, listen, saving grace. 
But if you'll understand this morning, God never intended the picture uh, to be the very thing that brings about our salvation. All the picture is ever supposed to do is to uh, represent something that is uh, real in, in uh, taking place in, a, in another place. I, I represented that one day by, uh, by saying that uh, imagine a wife having a, her husband's gone uh, in the war, he's off in another part of the world, so she's taking his picture and hangs it in the bedroom and she stands in front of that picture and she talks to it every day and honey I can't wait for you to get back home and, and uh, it's going to be a, a, a great time. I love you so much, you mean the world to me and, and um, so he finally comes home, he knocks on the door one day, she goes and answers the door and there stands her husband and she runs back to the bedroom to his picture, takes it off the wall, hugs the picture and says, I love you so much, you mean so much to me, I'll, I'll never be parted with you. You say, well, that'd be a foolish thing to do, the, the, the real guy standing in the doorway, exactly, and that's the picture. That's the idea is that if something is simply to picture something that's greater that's all it's supposed to do, but it is supposed to picture in an accurate way what Christ has done for us. Bear that in mind as we get into our um, message here this morning. We're in Matthew 26, and we're going to go from 17, and we'll go all the way down to verse uh, 29. So find verse 17. It kind of sets us up for what is taking place here. We find uh, uh, Judas is on the move, and Christ makes him aware of that. Um, so Matthew 26, look in verse 17. Now, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, the disciples came to Jesus saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? Where do you want us to go and, and set this big meal up? Verse 18, and he said, "Go." Now listen to his words. Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The master saith, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. You read the other Gospels. One of the other Gospels says, um, go out into the city. You'll find a man with a pitcher of water. Um, let's see, Peter and John, I believe, were the two that he sent. And it never does say go to, and doesn't call the guy's name. He doesn't say go to this man's house. Uh, you're going to find so-and-so. Here's his name. He'll be standing there with a pitcher of water. Ask him his name, and that's where you're supposed to go. Notice he doesn't even say the man's name, and others are, are asking the question, why? And we're not exactly sure why, but I think I know a good reason why, because Judas had already indicated he's going to betray him, and he wants to look for an opportunity uh, to know where he's going to be so that he can bring, you know, the chief priest, the scribes, and the, the Roman authorities after him. And so it's possible that Jesus is just not saying the name of the house where he's going. That's a possibility. We're not sure of that. So verse 19, and the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now, when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. That was an earth-shaking statement. And they were exceeding sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? Am I the one? Are you trying to say that I'm going to be the one that is going to betray you? In verse 23, and he answered and said, he that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. Now, all of them were doing that. So what is he talking about when he says he that dips 
his hand with me in the dish because there was a bowl, a, a sop, they would call that vinegar mixture, and they would dip their bread in that and would eat it, and all of them would do that. So what was he saying? He's simply saying one of you that is around this table who's eating right alongside of me is going to be the one who will uh, betray me. So verse 24 says, follow me, the Son of Man goeth as it is written of him. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Gives you an idea what Judas is experiencing today. Uh, Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. Now you read all the other Gospels. We're going to keep going from here. Hold your place there. There's really no indication that the statement that he made that, uh, yeah, it's you, was really heard by the other disciples. I, I've searched it out. I can't find out where uh, all the other disciples heard, and then now they know it's going to be Judas. Some think that when Jesus looked at him and said, uh, thou hast said, that he whispered it to him or whatever. But I don't see a, any indication where all the disciples are like, man, it's not us. Now we know who the guy is. But uh, nonetheless, Judas knows without doubt. And the, and the game that he's been playing, Lord, is it, is it me? He knew obviously it was him. And Christ had to make him very well aware that he knew. You've said so, yes. Now look in verse 26. And I want us to, to notice especially this set of verses. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. That doesn't mean drink, uh, drink all of what's in the cup. It means drink ye all. Hey, all of you guys, drink this. Read the other accounts and you'll see that's what he's saying when he says that. Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission, the forgiveness, the payment of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Another one of the Gospels said, Jesus says to them, with great desire I have desired to have this supper with you. Christ wanted in the worst way to uh, be a part of this emblem, this picture of what he was just about to do in a matter of hours literally from this moment here um, where he would literally die for them. And this was going to be a picture. And every time the Lord's Supper is observed, it is to be simply a picture of what Christ has done for us. So with, with that in mind, let's have prayer and then we'll share the message here this morning. God, thank you for bringing us safely to the house of God today and and letting us open God's word and to be able to, Father, for me to be able to preach it, God, is a great honor. I would pray as I do every Sunday, God, give me liberty, give me the grace of God and your anointing power to preach the word I would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you can look backwards uh, to um, a time in history that most of us here are going to be very familiar with, America gained its independence from Britain. Uh, its 
when we did that, when we are no longer and we're no longer under the thumb, over, uh, under the rulership, the direction and guidance of uh, Britain, it was the most memorable event in American history. Uh, not one of the most, but it was the most memorable event in American history. The signing of the Declaration of Independence is so momentous. It, it's so significant that you know as well as I do, every year we set aside one day to celebrate our independence and our liberation from Britain. It's a very special day to us. The fireworks, fried chicken, uh, you can go on and on with all the things that we try to do. And of all the things I want to try to remember as I've got a big flag in the house, I try to go take it out and display the flag and uh, show how thankful we are for uh, our country and that God bringing us to a place of independence. Israel also celebrated an event that was even more momentous than our 4th of July is to us. Uh, it has everything to do with their deliverance from the oppression of Egypt. Now stay with me on a story if you were here last Sunday night. I kind of stressed this a little bit because uh, Josiah was uh, um, partaking of the Passover supper again and, and he did it in a greater way than it had ever been done before at that time. So if you'll remember, Israel was in Egypt. They were under severe slavery and persecution. Um, taskmasters whipped them into obedience to build their massive structures for them. They would mourn and cry because of the anguish that was brought upon them. And God heard their cry. And God sent a man to them to deliver them from this great oppression down in Egypt and to take them onto their promised land. And we know that man to be Moses. Pharaoh refused to let Israel go. Moses goes, talks to him. I'm not going to let those people go. Who do you think you are trying to deliver your, your people? They, need, they belong right here. We, we, we own them, so to speak. So we refused. And you know, God sent nine different plagues into the land. And each one of them was intended to convince this Pharaoh to let God's people go. Wording in the Bible. And with each one, he's like, okay, all right, I will. And then he would, he would renege and go back on his word. But you know as well as I do, the 10th plague was designed by God to break that stubborn will of Pharaoh. And God knew what it was going to take. Every one of those plagues, by the way, was a personal affront to one of the deities, one of the gods that they worshipped uh, in, uh, down in Egypt. And now they come to that last and final plague. Uh, a, a death angel, as you know, here's the 10th plague. A death angel was sent down into the streets of Egypt. God had warned all of Israel, I, I, want, I want you to take a little lamb. I want you to kill the lamb. I want you to take its blood and strike it on the, the doorpost of your houses and on the top board, the lintel. And, uh, and as that angel of God reached the Hebrews' homes where all the blood was, uh, that death angel would come and try to enter that home because it wanted to, to bring judgment on anybody that it could find to give judgment to. But there was something preventing that death angel getting into the home of the Hebrew children. And it was the blood of a lamb. But that death angel made his way on down into downtown Egypt. Their homes were exposed to the judgment of God they mocked and made fun of the God of the Hebrews. So they were not about to take the blood of some animal and strike it on our doorpost. We're fine the way we are. Our gods are going to protect us, was their thought. And so that angel went to every 
household in Egypt, and there was no blood, and there was nothing preventing his entrance into those households. And in every house in Egypt, the firstborn in every household died. Even of the firstborn of the cattle, the Bible teaches us that. With that, when that happened, very quickly... Pharaoh sent the Hebrews out of Egypt, expelled them, wanted them out as quickly as possible, and praise the Lord, hey, they finally had their liberty. No more does Egypt have their thumb over the top of us. We're no longer under oppression. They can no longer persecute us and and beat us to, to try to get us to do even more every day to satisfy them. For Egypt, the Hebrews' liberty came at a very high cost. For the Hebrews... It came because of the death of a lamb and its blood that protected it from the judgment of God. It's what it cost Israel. And that was so significant an event that now every year God commanded them, I want you to remember your deliverance from Egypt by celebrating what we call in the Old Testament the Passover. The time where the death angel came to your houses wanted to come in, could not get in because of the blood of a, a little lamb that had been shed. And that, that uh, death angel had to, well, we had to pass over that house. Can't get into that house. And we had to pass over that house. There's blood on the doorpost there. And God said, I want you to remember down through um, all the ages, I, I want your children to be reminded of. And every time they partake of this Passover supper, I want there to be emblems in that supper that will remind them exactly what took place on that night when the death angel hit downtown Egypt. So in our text today, Jesus is instituting, and hear this, in our text here this morning, Jesus is instituting a new celebration. It's going to completely do away with the need for a a Passover celebration. It'll no longer commemorate something that was a physical deliverance. Guys, you know as well as I do, this new supper will celebrate a spiritual deliverance. Something that happened in the heart of individuals. And while the Passover of the Old Testament was a symbol of their deliverance from the world, now what we read about here this morning, we call it the Lord's Supper, some call it communion, uh, that now celebrates not just the deliverance from the world, but it's deliverance now from my sin. Praise the Lord. I'm no longer held captive to my sin. And the the penalty of my sin is no longer the condemnation of my sin is no longer upon me. My penalty and the condemnation of Philip Spencer was placed on Jesus Christ at Calvary. He took my condemnation and I don't have to look, uh, if you want to call it, look forward to or to dread the day when I stand before God and he has to judge me for my sin. I will never see that day ever because Jesus stood before the Father with all the sins of the world upon him and took our judgment. Praise the Lord. So when we are celebrating the Lord's Supper, know and understand that it is simply a symbol of what Jesus Christ went through for us. So they, the Passover of the Old Testament and the Lord's Supper of the New Testament, they certainly have some similarities. Yes, they do. But there are some very major differences, and that's what I would like to spend the, the rest of the message on here this morning. So what are some of those differences we find from the, uh, from the Passover of the Old Testament, representing 
freedom from Egypt, to the Lord's Supper that represents freedom from our sin. What are some of those major differences? Uh, Each one of those suppers, Passover, the Lord's Supper, remembered different things. You you would be able to tell me those things. I, I made it very clear. I think I did in here this morning. Number one, the Passover was done to remember how God miraculously delivered the Hebrews from the bondage to Egypt. I mean, years ago, you go back and read the history, uh, the Hebrews used to be welcome guests down in, in Egypt. When Jacob uh, heard the cry of his son Joseph, he thought Joseph had been slain. Come to find out he was sold into bondage down there. You know the story of Joseph. Joseph finds out his dad's still alive. He says, Dad, bring all your family and everybody. Come on down into Egypt. Pharaoh loved Joseph so much that that love transferred over even to his family and all of the Hebrews. And they gave them, I believe it was the, the land of Goshen to raise their cattle. And, um, and the Egyptians had a, um, I, I wouldn't say they were bosom buddies with any of these guys, but they, they allowed them to be there. It was not a big deal to them. And if Pharaoh likes them, then we like them. And that was the way it used to be. But after this Hebrew-friendly Pharaoh passed away, and this, this other Pharaoh comes to the kingdom, then he looks out and sees how, how many of these Hebrews there really are. You know how God blesses the Jew, and, and uh, they were having many, many children, and their families were growing in, larger in number than even the Egyptians. And so Pharaoh's like, oh my goodness, if another nation attacks us, we're afraid that the Hebrews will join up with uh, one of our enemies and then wipe us out, and they won't have to you know, be here under us, so to speak, and so forth. And so he comes up with this plan, I'm going to make them slaves. I'll make them work really hard. And the harder they work, the less they'll be able to have children. And, uh, and so he concocted that plan. You know how it goes. And, and uh, it did not work. And God continued to bless the Hebrews. And they continued to multiply. And so the, the, the greater they multiplied, the harsher his punishment was to them. And the persecution was horrible. So while the Passover supper commemorated the Hebrews' deliverance from their Egyptian bondage and the the whippings that they would have and and the cruel mockings and all that took place, uh, so while the Passover supper commemorated the Hebrews' deliverance, the Lord's supper was instituted to remember our deliverance from our spiritual bondage. Praise God. Anybody remember what it was like before you got saved? Everybody still awake? Look up here. I was saved when I was nine years old. And I have to tell you, the day before I got saved and the day after I got saved, if you'd have looked at me, both days, you'd say, I don't see any difference. Because even though I was unsaved and living in the household of Matt Spencer, guess how Matt Spencer wanted his kids to live? (laughs) He wanted them to live like saved kids, whether they were saved or not. And, and I knew how to obey, and I knew how to do the right things to stay out of trouble. And the way I looked and acted on the day before salvation and the day after looked very much the same. You'd have to peel my heart open and look inside to see the difference. Because the day before, my heart was black with sin. And I, I, I was on my way to hell, just to be real honest about that. Even as a nine-year-old boy, I knew the difference between right and wrong. I knew when I had sinned and when I had done something wrong. My heart was black. And if God would have taken me in my life at that young age, I would have gone 
straight to a devil's hell. I, I just would have in the judgment of God. But the day after, you look at my outside body, and I look just like I did uh, two days before, but you peel my heart open now, and on the inside, it's just as white as snow, the Isaiah says. I was clean because of what Christ had done for me. And do you guys remember before you got saved how you used to act, what things used to be like? I've had people in our church tell me, uh, now that so-and-so, uh, I've watched a child or someone get saved, and what a difference I see in their life. Well, what was the difference, guys? Before, they were in bondage to sin. And if you had died, guys, understand when you're in bondage to sin, that sin is dragging you down in condemnation. Your, the judgment of your sin has not been paid for yet. You have not called out to the Lord for forgiveness and that His blood might wash away your sins and make you as white as snow. You're still in bondage to your sin. So prior to salvation, we're still in bondage. But when I now get saved and I trust Jesus Christ as Savior and I now partake of the Lord's Supper, it is an emblem that now my heart is uh, separated and freed from the bondage of my sin. Thank God for that. If we bring Wes Wendland in here, how many remembers the name Wes Wendland? Now let that man stand up here in front of us. It'd wake some of us up here this morning. How many of you got saved um, out of a Christian home? Your family was saved. You guys all went to church prior to that. Can I see your hands? Raise them up real high. Okay. How many would say, preacher, we got, when I got saved, I was not raised in good circumstances. They're pretty tough. And uh, it's pretty dark days before I got saved. Anybody be willing to say that? It was not, it was not so good, my wife and, and numbers of others. Wes, Wes Wendland would stand up here and tell you he was an alcoholic and, and a rotten one. And uh, he'll stand here with tears in his eyes the whole time telling what he used to do, how he lost his, his, uh, his, his uh, marriage and, and what it had done to him and friends and it was destroying his life and he was just under this bondage just had to have another drink until a man had been witnessing to him and finally it, hey guys listen it, it, it got to his heart and God began to convict him about uh, what was uh, going on in his heart and how guilty he was before God and he'll tell you God convicted me so bad and, and I realized I was lost and I was on my way to hell and, uh, and that I had no way of getting myself out of the bondage of the sin that I was in. And he'll tell you, he got down on his knees and he said, he's telling me this story. He says, preacher, I started confessing everything in the world I'd ever done wrong. <laughs> I've, I've only heard of two or three other people that did that, but some of them had to plug their ears while confessing all those things they had done wrong, bad stuff. Now, let me just say this. You don't have to confess every sin you've ever committed because you never remember them all. You do need to confess that you are a sinner before the Lord. But I appreciate his spirit, don't you? Trying to think of every sin he could ever think of, and he confessed his sin. He said, man, I got up off my knees, and he knew God had done something in his life. And the grip of alcohol on his life was no longer there. And he had freedom from his sin. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it is while the Passover Supper celebrated their being delivered from Egypt, and that was a big deal. But man, guys, uh, when, when, I, when I got saved and I'm celebrating the Lord's Supper now, it's a picture that I am me, Wes Wendland, and everybody here this morning that's saved is no longer under the thumb of, under the bondage and the condemnation of sin. Praise God for that, what that represents for us. 
Before salvation, God describes us as being dead in our trespasses and sin. Galatians 1.4, please listen, says, Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father. And thank God that is what he did. He delivered us from this old world. And I'm not a part of this world anymore. Hebrews 2.15 says, And deliver them who through fear of death, listen to this phrase, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. See, I wasn't in bondage before I got saved. Oh yeah, you were. You just didn't realize how strong sin was leading your life. You were heading in one direction and God was leading in another. You were going in an exact opposite direction than what God intended you to go. All your life before you got saved, you were subject to the bondage of your sin. And this deliverance that God gave to us was a very permanent deliverance. It was a picture of Christ's finished work on Calvary. When Jesus died and paid for my sin debt, and I called upon the name of the Lord when I got saved, Jesus saved me once and for all. Is there anybody in here that has sinned since you got saved? I'm just curious. Any of you in here? Really? Are you kidding? Three of you. We have an invitation right now for those who didn't raise your hand. We've all sinned. I don't want to. I, I, really, I really feel bad when I do sin now, whereas before, I just didn't want to get caught from my mom and dad. Now I feel bad that I've sinned against my father. And when I got saved, even though I sin again, guys... Uh, Jesus died on Calvary, please listen to this, one time for all. Once for all. And that's all it takes. Oh, so you can just go and sin and do whatever you want now. Let me just say this. If I had said to my dad, Matt Spencer, if I'd walked up to my dad and I said, hey dad, I'm a Spencer, right? Yes, you are. I have all the blessings of the Spencer household, right? Yes, son, you do. I love you with all my heart. Well, dad, then I'm pretty well protected here in this house, and I'm just going to go ahead and do whatever I want to do. I'll come home when I want to come home. Don't tell me to be at home 10 o'clock on Friday nights. I'll be home when I want to come home, Dad. And I, I'll, and I go on and on and tell Dad, I don't want to hoe the beans in the garden, Dad. You can do that. I'm so protected here in, in the Spencer household. Now, the fact that I'm standing here preaching to you on two good legs is a testimony that I never said anything like that to my dad. Dad would, uh, you guys might give spankings, I got whoopings. And I know what whoopings was. But a whooping wasn't, you're never going to be my son ever again. I never want to have you as a part of this family. That was never what it was. It was just him saying, I want you to be a better Spencer. That's what it was. So it's not a license to sin. Go ahead and try it. Well, I can just get saved and live the way I want. Let me know how that goes. It's not going to go well. And by the way, if you can get by with it, I would question whether you really got saved. So my, my partaking of the Lord's Supper is a picture. They got, they got delivered from Egypt, but praise God, I got delivered from sin. Praise the Lord. Number two, they're different in what the elements pictured. Now, what do you mean by elements? Well, the things that they were eating, the elements of the supper in the Old Testament, we've had... Years and years ago, we had a group, I think it was Jews for Jesus, came through, and, and since then we have had well, one of my friends that I graduated from college with, what's his name, Yvette? 
Phil Savalosky, he came through. They gave us an idea of what a, a Jewish Passover looks like, and they've got bitter herbs, and they've got a roast that is here that's a part of it, and there's numbers of different things that have since, their Passover has since morphed a little bit. They've added some things to it and so forth. But initially in the first uh, um, Passover, there's some very few things that were there. And, and now in the Lord's Supper, we have the unleavened bread and what is called in the Bible wine, which simply means juice. You understand wine in the Bible is a generic term? That it can either mean grape juice or intoxicating wine. It's amazing to me how quickly people today run and say, it says wine here, so Jesus says it's okay to drink wine. That's a whole other subject. But I will just say the, the elements of the Lord's Supper is unleavened bread and the juice that we will partake of. So what, what do these things picture? In the Old Testament, that Passover, uh, it would really be neat if we had somebody that could have set this up for us and show you all the elements that they would eat along with that roast. You know, what they would do is in the Old Testament, they would take a lamb, a yearling, a, a spotless lamb, and they would keep it up for a certain amount of days. And then on the exact day, they would kill the little lamb and they would take its blood Remember the doorpost? Go over the doorpost and strike it on the doorpost. Uh, that's how they did it on that first night. And then they would roast the lamb. They would partake of bitter herbs, which is a reminder of the bitterness that they used to live under in Egypt and so on. And uh, the, the roasting of the lamb was like this. They would choose a lamb uh, the size that might fit your family because God wanted it all to be eaten. He didn't want anything of it left. And so uh, they would try to pick a lamb about the size for their family. They would eat all of it if they could, but if they couldn't eat it all, in the morning they had to burn the rest of it. All of it had to be consumed. Does that make sense? Hey, just nod your head or something. All of it had to be eaten or consumed because that lamb was a picture of what? Now we move over to the New Testament. That, that was a picture of being delivered from uh, Egypt. Here's the, here's the picture of Christ delivering us from our sin. They take that bread. You want to go back there with me in verse 26? And, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it. Notice the wording, break it. Gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then they took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, so in the Old Testament, that lamb was to be consumed or burnt in the morning, and then it would be consumed then. Now we come over here, and here is the Lamb of God that John the Baptist said, would not just cover man's sin, but it would take away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ would go to Calvary, and in just a matter of hours from this point, the Roman soldiers will eventually come and take him. They will scourge him. They'll mock him. They'll, they'll punch his face. His face will be so blood red from the ripping his beard out. The man called the lictor would beat his back so badly that many times organs would begin to protrude out of a man's body. And when the Bible says that they would take bread and Jesus broke the bread, it's a picture of his broken body 
that was broken for you and me. And that stirs me up every time I think of that. Every time you would snap that leavened bread, it was a picture of Christ's broken body and how he gave his body for you and me. The Bible says he is the bread of life. Isn't that so good? And, and if, if you're going to take Christ, don't just take a little portion of his teaching. Consume the whole thing. You understand the semblance back there, how it was similar to the Old Testament lamb. And, and receive Christ. I mean, with all your heart and soul. Don't say, uh, yeah, I'll take a little bit of Jesus on Sunday and the rest of the world on Monday through Saturday is mine. No. Take him all or don't take him at all. And that's what God is saying. I mean, you get Jesus, you get all of him. Praise the Lord. And uh, we, we break that bread and it's a picture of his broken body for you and me. And then, of course, uh, they took that, um, the cup and gave thanks. And he told them, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Hey, look up here and listen very carefully. This is my blood. You know as well as I do, there are at least one major religion that believes when you eat the bread and you drink the wine they believe in a a word a process called transubstantiation that is to be found nowhere in the bible Uh, they actually believe once i eat the bread and i drink that juice that inside my body it literally turns into the body and the blood of jesus but guys that is not what jesus is referring to That's not the picture Christ is trying to get us to understand. You need to understand that when you get saved, Jesus Christ takes up residence inside of you. That's how you get all of Jesus in you. You don't eat uh, something that is just a symbol, something that just represents uh, a real event and expect that this representation can literally become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. No way. But the truth is, guys... When they did pluck his beard and when they did drive that crown of thorns into his brow with that rod and the blood began to flow. And you know, even at, uh, after he had died, they drove the spear in his side and, and blood and water came pouring out. Uh, you do know and understand that Jesus gave his blood so that you and I could have our sin debt paid for and taken care of. And when I take that juice and I drink of that, I'm reminded constantly of the willing heart Jesus had to lay his life down for me and give his life for me. What a picture. I don't think you can finish a a passage like this without saying this. Have you received all of Jesus? what used to in the Passover be a picture of Jesus Christ with that little lamb and he says uh, I I want you to eat it all I want it to be all consumed being a picture of how I would fully receive the Lord Jesus Christ I'm asking you is Jesus more than just somebody in your heart and mind or your mind have you trusted Christ to be your savior here's the deal guys you can't do anything to get yourself saved There's nothing that you could do to to, to take care of that penalty and that bondage of sin that was over us. Somebody, would you answer the question for me? If I could do something, if I could join a church, or if I could get sprinkled or immersed, or if I could take the sacraments that some churches offer, hey, listen, if I could do that, and then now I'm on my way to heaven, 
then why would we have to have a picture of the death of Jesus Christ and His broken body and the blood that was shed for us? We could have a bloodless book if I could do it myself. Anybody say amen to that? Yeah, you could. But the Bible is very clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And if somebody's blood was not shed, a perfect spotless lamb, if his blood had not been shed for us, then guys, we would be hopeless. And the question today is, have you trusted him to be your savior? I mean, away with the games that people play, religious games. Well, well, I think I am. Well, I, I, I'm, I do the best I can in all of this. I, I joined this church and I was baptized. I, I attended a confirmation class or I went to a discipleship class. Those are wonderful things, guys, but they don't get you into heaven. Only trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ and His death on Calvary for you, turning to a Savior and calling upon Him to save you, will that ever save anybody? question is today, if you died today, is what we just read about in the Bible here a picture of what Jesus has done for everybody else except for me? Or do you know without doubt Christ and his shed blood and his broken body has been applied to me as well? And if you're here this morning and you're not saved, I'm telling you, I'd get saved. We're going to give an invitation which would allow you to come forward. I'd be glad to take the word of God and show you how to be saved this morning. Um, But hey, again, every time I read that about Jesus taking that wafer of bread and snapping and breaking it he knew very well in just a few hours on down the road that would be his literal body that would be broken on calvary for me that does something to my heart makes me so thankful number one that i'm saved but number two somebody would do something like that for me when's the last time you just bowed down and said god thank you for what you've done for me and uh, the great sacrifice that christ paid for me When's the last time you just sincerely told him, thank you? We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.